Welcome to We Fight For That from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. My name is John Lawford, and I'm the Executive Director and General Counsel at PIAC. If you want lower cell phone bills, if you want a refund from a flight you couldn't take, or if you want to be treated better by your bank, we fight for that. Time for another round of consumer protection. Welcome to episode 24 of We Fight for That. Today we have a returning guest, Ben Klaas, who is a PhD candidate at Carleton University in the Journalism and Communications Department. He's also a PIAC board member and a board member of the Internet Society of Canada. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me, John. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back after our last episode when you were talking about perhaps having different structures in telecom, as I recall. Um, But here today, we're going to talk about the Rogers outage and perhaps a bit about the Rogers deal without getting too deep into the weeds. But we're really trying to focus on consumer issues coming out of the massive Rogers outage of internet and wireless service on the 8th of July. And for some people into the 9th, I know I had trouble into the 9th getting my uh, voice to work and then and then getting some late texts and things later in the day, but it was pretty much cleaned up by the evening of the night. Since that time, a number of things have happened, and uh, I think I'll just start, Ben, with a, a little recap of a few things that have happened, then if I miss things you think are significant, we'll add them, and then I want to go back and start talking about some of those happenings and some of the um, commentary that I've seen in the press, because I think it'll inform people about what's going on. What has happened is... Since the outage, Rogers announced that they're going to give their customers five days of um, free, uh, well, five days off of their bill. Uh, In other words, a credit for five days worth of service, uh, which they say is approximately 15% of your bill, which is welcome and uh, probably not required under their their contract with you, but we'll get to that. They've also um, uh, made a number of statements. I know I've received at least three emails from at least signed by Tony Staffieri, uh, claiming to uh, never want to do it again and to be taking certain measures um, to improve the network and to uh, to do better in general. Also, since then, the industry committee of the House of Commons has held a hearing day with representatives from Rogers, uh, from the, the industry minister himself, as well as um, the uh, chief operating officer and executive officer, excuse me, and, uh, and chair of the CRTC and Scott, as well as some, some people, including Ben and myself, um, Michael Geist and uh, Dwayne Winsack, to, to give a bit of a consumer slash uh, public point of view uh, just at the very end of that. And we also have the CRTC having asked questions to Rogers on the 12th and demanding answers by the 22nd to certain questions, which answers Rogers did deliver on the 22nd and I believe were posted on the 23rd or sometime during the weekend. And I read them on Monday, the 25th. uh, And they were large chunks of redactions in those on the basis that Rogers wants to keep things confidential because of uh, security or uh, competitive reasons. And that is a whole other can of worms. So that's, I think, what's happened since. But Ben, do you think I've missed any major events or announcements uh besides that 
Well, Rogers had an earning call this morning, and I understand their profits are up uh, for this quarter over what they were last year. So uh, they're doing, doing pretty good, I guess, all things considered. Yeah, I guess this particular outage wouldn't appear on their uh, their quarterly statement yet. It's going to go on the next one in terms of the you know the, the ten to fifteen percent of lost monthly uh, billings. So that's probably going to have a, a dip uh, in the next quarterly reporting. But it seems they're making money. Um, and as well, today they also announced, uh, Rogers and Shaw, that is, that they will continue to keep the deal alive. It was supposed to come to some kind of termination by the 31st of July, and they've announced they're going to run it till the end of December of this year, uh, giving them time to try to negotiate something uh, to close the Rogers-Shaw merger, uh, even though the Competition Bureau is in front of the Competition Tribunal to try to block it. And also, I believe Rogers has some financing to do because their bonds that were issued to finance the deal, I believe, are nominally due uh, the 31st of December. So they'll have to refinance that somehow. Okay, so isn't that fun? Um, Consumers, I think, uh, were rightly chilled to the bone by not being able to use their internet and their cell phones for a period of about 24 hours for most people. Um, And for some folks who had bundled services um, they also would have lost their, their television service and, uh, and their home phone service with Rogers if they had all those things together. Um, and just before we get to the, the discussion, first, I want to, you know, talk about some commentary on this and see the takes and, and, and start our discussion there. But do you have any general comments on the seriousness of the outage or, you know, what it means to the public interest or consumers to have something this major happen in telecommunications? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the first takeaway for me, John, is uh, that it's a real a real eye-opener. Um, we all really rely on these services for so many different things. And to such a, a deep extent, uh, I think public interest is a really good way of framing this and the impact of this type of outage. We hear the language of consumers versus producers a lot in these discussions, but... Uh, I think the outage sort of illustrated how far beyond just uh, uh, you know a product we buy in the market these services really are. It wasn't just people being stopped from watching their cat videos or s- scrolling through TikTok. It was uh, stores not able to take payments and uh, hospitals scrambling to be able to keep the operation going in an already difficult time. You know, telecommunication is the infrastructure. It's like the nerve center of the 21st century here. And uh, we were all sort of woke up on that Friday. Red Friday, as Graham Abramson is coined <laughs> the phrase. Cute. Uh, we all sort of woke up and were disconnected all of a sudden. You know, so I think the, the number one thing for me is, uh, and the starting point is that this, is, this isn't just a choice that people are making and an inconvenience that they're suffering when it's not available. It's something that we really need access to for so many different things. Yeah. This is the discussion of whether telecommunications is an essential service. And um, especially post pandemic, I think almost everyone would agree that it's pretty hard to do most basic things, but also a lot of critical things, like you say, healthcare, uh, you know, like the, the hospitals do want you to fill out, um, even the, you know, like a, a QR code just to get in to go to your appointments, you know, and, and if you can't get connectivity, I'm not sure how that worked or whether that was an issue, but um, 
I know people couldn't uh, submit insurance forms and that they had the major problem being the Interact system relying, it seems, on Rogers for their connectivity and effectively having no debit for uh, the duration of the, of the outage was was difficult for people who didn't have credit um, and couldn't access that or didn't have the connectivity to access their credit, even if it was working um, and didn't carry cash. And so there, that, that is a pretty major, you know, payments is a, is a major consumer need and function. And it really, you know, it has to work. So whether, whether interact should have a redundant backup system or not is, is kind of a different issue, but that's the kind of thing that runs totally on telecommunications now. And, uh, as well as some transport services. I know the Arrive Can program was also disrupted for people coming in on planes and many folks I spoke to had to fill in the form manually to get back in the country who just happened to pick, you know, a bad day to come back into Canada. Um, a couple of takes that I noticed, if if I will, I'm, I'm not downplaying the seriousness of this. I mean, things could have gone worse and perhaps we'll hear stories um, about people who have had medical issues or perhaps even died during the during the during the outage and and who knows what role telecom or lack thereof may have played in that but you know we were lucky this happened during the summer and not in minus 40 in the winter and uh and it, things could be bad or could have been worse um in terms of public safety and the 911 um services that were disrupted um is an interesting issue and i think we should deal with that separately but uh just to say that we you know i'm not passing over this quickly because uh, I don't think there are other super serious things that shouldn't be ventilated, but I want to move on to the regulation and the, and the ideas people have had since. And I want to start with um, certain commentators and certain ideas that are floating around. So Ben, you've probably seen a paper from the CG people, uh, which was commented on by Erica Eiffel in uh, the Hill Times, uh, which basically says, goes something like this. Telecommunications is now so important that it should be regulated like a public good. Uh, in other words, completely regulated from top to bottom. Um, and that the network should be um, either structurally separated or... Um, or it should be nationalized, you know, and to what extent the nationalization of the companies should be carried out is never specified. I don't know what your initial reaction to that is. To me, that that's a natural reaction, but it 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 it, it betrays a real lack of understanding of what's happened since 1993 in telecom regulation. Do you do you understand why people go to these? Um, to these sort of uh, ideas post-crisis and why they think it's, it's sort of doable when I obviously you can tell in my voice, I think it's, it's going to be kind of a heavy lift. Well, John, I mean, your knowledge on this runs so deep that I think you can see a lot of the parts that are moving around in greater detail than some other people can, most other people, I would say. And so, uh, you know, I agree that, when you're thinking about the types of responses we can have uh, to immediate problems, it's important to consider what's realistic and what's practical, given things like the political possibilities, the, the horizon of likelihood that um, a solution might actually take place, right? Because our resources are limited to plow into these types of things. And 
um, there has to be a reasonable prospect of success. We've become so uh, used to the market approach in Canada since the 1990s uh, that it doesn't seem like there are other possibilities. But if you look around the world, places like Australia and Britain and even places in Canada have got a different arrangement than simply uh, a market-first approach with the government that steps in when there's a failure. You know, in Saskatchewan, we have the Crown Telco, Saskel. Thunder Bay uh, has got its own telecom. In Australia, uh, the government uh, took over the backbone of their whole country's broadband network. And in Britain, they have a wholesale uh, network that called OpenReach. Uh, you know, it's a sort of a division of one of their their version of Bell, but it's very, very strictly regulated. But each of those countries, they have their own their own culture, their own political scene, and so I think people go to these types of ideas uh, because they know what we've got isn't working. You know, we this this trust us. Let the let the market rip and people will uh, get the services they need and they'll work the way they're supposed to. Um, that's the story that we've been told and the promise that's been made to us for so long. But uh, until until it actually delivers, I think you're going to have people looking for, for alternatives. And it's it's less important whether those things are something that will sail through and be completely problem-free than the fact that we need to be considering alternatives because it's very clear i think to a lot of people that what we've got now isn't working for everyone i would agree with you that i am I'm, I'm pleased to see people discussing things like structural separation which is when yeah you re, you require the the main backbone network of of the biggest provider usually the big legacy telecom like bell uh to uh, to be offered to all all retail including their own you know on an equal basis and and or nationalizing the backbone as Australia kind of effectively did with their former monopoly telecom rate um, provider Telstra in uh, in Australia, and I'm, I'm happy people are discussing this. I I think what isn't said is that the political sort of uh, leadership in Canada has deliberately not chosen that way and probably doesn't have, at least in its present iteration the political will to undertake either of those options um, and instead we have what has been in place which is the crtc and the assumption that the telecommunications act will do something about stuff like this and the piece that i find that people like ms Eiffel are are missing and other commenters who just you know maybe cg and so on and so forth um what they're missing is the period from 1993 until July 7th, <laughs> which is um, you have a regulator, but they've been given an act which says don't regulate. That competition can do it. And if competition can do it, then unless you can, in very extreme circumstances, perhaps like this, really show that the market just cannot do it. The regulators actually kind of told under the Telecommunications Act of 1993 not to intervene and that's a neoliberal structure if you want to put it in those terms um it was a reform that was worked on for many years in the 80s uh, and early 90s by sort of chicago school economists some of whom were resident here in canada and that's the act we got 
but it's chickens are really kind of only really coming home to roost now. And uh, I don't really want to drag people through the whole forbearance stuff, but I, w- I do want to go to another before we come back to that, perhaps Ben, another idea that's been floated. I heard it in, I don't know if you did too. You must've um, when Brian mass of the NDP was um, putting forth the idea of a telecom bill of rights so that consumers would have a leg to stand on, I guess, in front of the CRTC, right. To argue that there needs to be some baseline consumer protection requirements on these companies. What do you think of that approach of trying to get some, some rules safe, say in this case for public safety and, and, and reliability through a, like a telecom bill of rights approach? Well, uh, I think that the idea of, um, formalizing people's rights, uh, is a good one. And I think that in general, the processes that we have, uh, for doing that afford a number of different ways to approach it. So we've got a number of these bills of rights that have come in from the CRTC over recent years, you know, the wireless code and then the, later the TV service provider code and the internet code. I don't know to the extent to which, you know, I'd have to think about it a little, whether those things are better characterized as a bill of rights or as a series of obligations that the providers have towards people, you know, thou shalt not disconnect someone. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all designed by the CRTC in conversation with mostly the industry a couple of ragtag consumer interest groups who uh you know sometimes get struggled to have their voices heard to the same extent that uh bigger companies have but uh you know so the idea of a telecom bill of rights that comes from the legislature i think is an interesting one i'm not a lawyer uh you know so i've i've just got a sort of plain interpretation of these things but i read that section two of the charter that says People have the, the right to freedom of expression, including using the means of com- communication. And I, I don't know, John, do you think that that's something that could be built on to, to sort of at a more foundational level than the CRTC build some, some real formal rights for people? Well, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, from well, you're hardly a layman, but for somebody uh, who's not a lawyer looking at this, a bill of rights seems like a good idea. I think it's something that people understand it's a legal structure that people understand the the real bonus of having an individual right in the present society how things are set up politically is that individuals can then force change because they can go to fill in the blank tribunal presumably here it would be the crtc that would vindicate your telecom rights like right let's say you had a right to not be disconnected or gosh, a right to compensation if the if service was below a certain standard, um, you then presumably could have some hopefully easy procedural method to bring a complaint like at the Human Rights Tribunal, right? That didn't cost you money as well. I mean, beyond your time of investing in your complaint to, to get a really substantive uh, change through. And so that's attractive in the sense that you can mobilize people who are individuals who can express, you know, the, the violation of their quote unquote rights, which will really benefit to be honest, let's face it, many millions of others if they win. Um, what I don't like about that is, and the sort of the reason why PIAC exists is that you're going to get one person with one problem that shines an, a light on one facet of a very diverse public interest. I mean, a lot of the time, everybody's public interest aligns around having 
you know, connectivity be up 99.999% of the time, but uh, the individual bringing it will bring a particular set of facts and a particular approach and a particular request for particular remedies that might not actually reflect all the facets of the public interest and the the Supreme Court of Canada and the CRTC are very fond of saying, you know, the public interest is a multifaceted, um, poly, I was going to say polyamorous, but I know that's not the word, but you know what I mean? <laughs> polyvalent, poly, I think. Polyvalent or whatever the poly word is, um, uh, interest that has many facets. And, and, you know, we often say that too in hearings that we're just here representing certain consumers, but there are other cons- public interest groups that can bring you another view of the public interest. And if you put them all together, you get a, you know, you get a, a viewable picture. And I think that that's why I feel uncomfortable. Um, the other reason why is because I think to do that, you have to, you just basically have to completely rewrite the Telecommunications Act. And so deep breath, here we go. The Telecommunications Act is designed around controlling telecommunications companies through their rates. That's how it works. And it basically says, hey, we're allowed to regulate your rates. We can tell you to publish the rates. The rates don't change unless we approve them. And all the things that let you deliver your service, including interconnection, building new facilities, uh, other conditions of running a telecom, all are approved by the CRTC. And if you don't tow the line, you don't get to interconnect, you don't get to charge your rates, and basically you can't be a telecommunications provider. That's the way the act was written. That's the way it was even before 1993. But what happened then was two little sections got stuck in there. One, one was um, section 34. Um, well, 30, I guess I'm thinking of 34.1, 34.2, but basically they, they allowed the commission to not regulate on all those things I just mentioned. So setting the rates and requiring a certain quality service in order for you to charge the rates and whether you can interconnect with people and all these things, the CRTC has an explicit power since 93 to not do any of the things that, that are its tools in order to achieve outcomes. Well, but we don't have to worry about that. They would, surely they wouldn't use such a power and surely they wouldn't invoke it across the broad spectrum of the communication services that people rely on, would they? No. Well, you know, the answer to that is they certainly did. And, the process took a little while with wireline telephone. It took until about 2006 and 2007 to effectively remove in all but the smallest population centers all of that rate regulation. And with it, FYI, the quality of service. So the quality of your telecom service is effectively up to whoever provides it to you. So yes, they absolutely did do that. And they cited forbearance because the test in that section 34 I spoke of is if consumers can be protected and served by competition rather than regulation, competition is to be implemented or may be implemented. There's a may and there's a, there is a must. Uh, if consumers are protected, it must be. And um, if the same ends can be achieved without regulation, it, it may be. It doesn't matter. The point is under both headings, the CRTC has, as you're um, sort of so cutely putting there, very much allowed that. And internet and wireless, except for maybe one year at the start of wireless, have never been rate regulated and have never had quality of service regulations under all these other sections I talked about. So that's what I tried to make clear in our Industry Canada appearance 
And I feel like no one in the room understood what I just said. I don't know what your impression of it was, but that was my lead point of three. <laughs> and I said, Hey, guess what guys, you know, there's this act called the telecom act. It has these requirements and one of them spawns, you know, the just and reasonable rate setting I talked about. One element of setting the rate is you have to provide a quality service. And guess what, guys? We've never required the rates to be set by the CRTC for internet and wireless service. It's always been competition in the market. And therefore, there is no quality service regulation. So don't complain now that there's no quality service regulation and Rogers didn't live up to whatever you think is a quality service because there's no regulation. I, do you think that washed over people? Because I feel like nobody understood what I was talking about. Yeah, it's hard to say. We appeared at the end of the day. Uh, you know, the, the important people had come and uh, and made their made their statements and presumably the journalists were struggling to get to the deadline at that point in the day. But but how can I tell the average person what I'm talking about here? What I, what I want to say is, hey, you pick up the phone, you expect a dial tone, right? You go to your internet connected computer and you fire up your browser, you expect to see Google or whatever comes up first, right? You pick up your cell phone, you text your friend, you expect the text to go through. Duh, right? But those are all what I call are calling quality of service. In other words, you pick it up, you do something, and something happens. That's what I'm talking about. And I want to get it through people's head that at the moment, the CRTC, although they have the power to require kind of like a baseline of, you know, whether your text should go through and whether you should get a dial tone and whether you should be able to see Google on your page when you turn on your home computer. That's their job. They have an act that says they can do it, but but they're not doing it right now. They're leaving that fully, 100%, to the companies to define how well they deliver that. Yeah, John, you know, I think the part of the thing this outage exposes is the many ways that we're disconnected because you're describing a variety of the tools, the most obvious ones that we've got, you know, the telecommunications act, we've got the tools to deal with this. These aren't new problems. You know, this isn't the first time that the internet has gone down, uh, for a large number of people, you know, people who are living in rural areas experience it all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I have people regularly ask me, you know, the companies overcharge me. What am I supposed to do? Right. We've had these hearings at the CRTC about having a code for this and a code for that. And well, there's this thing called the CCTS and, you know, you can call it if you've got a problem with your telephone provider and there's this particular protocol and people don't, don't seem to, to get that. You know, these are all disconnects. And I think you, at, at the base of it, these are things we go back to where we started. These are things people need. They just expect them to work. And we can't, we, we sort of keep running into these situations where it, it breaks down and everyone throws up their hands and they say, oh, well, we need more competition or, uh, you know, we need to strengthen the resilience. You know, I can't count the amount of times I've heard people say the word resilience over the past couple of weeks um, following this outage, you know, but that, it's kind of like uh it's a bit it's it's like tautological you know it doesn't it doesn't tell you anything we need more resilience well of course we do because we don't have enough resilience you know like that's what this that's what this outage teaches us but i think we need to see that that doesn't just extend to the network 
because between me and you, there was a, a data malfunction in their core network and they couldn't speak to the internet. I mean, that doesn't say any, doesn't say very much to me. And it doesn't say very much, I think, to the average person who just expects there to be a dial tone when they, they pick up the phone. You know, we have the tools to fix these things, but we're not fixing them. Let's, let's go and, and talk about that then, because that leads me into um, what could have been done in the early days and hours of this thing that I, like, I don't think are being done. I think you're referring, Ben, to a set of answers that Rogers gave to the CRTC on the 22nd, right? To the initial questions from the CRTC saying, so what happened? Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if that's the first place I saw it, but that, that you know, they've developed a, a story about what, what happened, what caused this problem. And I think there's, there's been gradually a bit more contour given to it. Although, as you mentioned in the beginning of the interview, um, we still, you know, are, are facing a, an explanation that's full of redaction and likely won't ever get the full picture as regular members of the public of exactly what went down. Yeah. Well, I'll get to the procedure of this, but you know, I've been reading it too. And, um, it's not completely coherent. I also listened with some interest to Mr. Staffieri and his new CTO, right? Technology officer. Um, try to describe in general terms with enough specificity to fl- deflect questions, but without any detail, but what's going on. And the same wording was in this, this response. Um, just enough baffle gab to get you lost and then, and then nothing. And then, of course, a lot of re- redaction. I think, you know, we, we will be asking for more disclosure on this thing, but what seems to have occurred is something that was a rare or unexpected result, but that there did not seem to be firewalls, kind of like a submarine with no doors interior to it, where you couldn't close the door and have one part of the submarine flooded and not have the whole thing get full of water. Um, and and that kind of fairly basic protection to the updating of their network is is what I think when people talk about resilience, like that's a practical intermediate step that we should be asking more questions of Rogers about. But the level of detail we've gotten in their answers here doesn't let me, for example, say, so, you know, have you ever done a network upgrade that's meant to affect the entire network, both sides, internet and wireless, where you rolled it out in just your BC, uh, you know, uh, area or just your Ontario area or half of your Ontario area, just to, you know, kind of check that it's working first. (laughs) Um, Do you not do that all the time? I'm getting the kind of impression that that's not the way they do it, or they had a reason because this was update apparently number six of seven of a planned update for a reason we don't know why they're doing it, which we maybe would like to see now because it seems relevant. Whatever the reason, whether it was routine or it seemed to be going well, you know, like I'd like to know if normally the update's done with a little bit more time and, and perhaps in stages or segments to avoid this kind of thing or whether this, you know, they're often flying without a parachute, so to speak here. Um, but I'm not sure we're going to get to that kind of level of detail of inquiry. The Rogers executives were pretty, they were pretty insistent that they act very carefully and they plan and they do these things in stages. And there's a, 
a pr- process that they follow to ensure that things unfold as uh, they plan. Now, obviously, we all know what happened there, and so you got to take it with a grain of salt. The situation reminds me of a book by an author called Nassim Nicholas Taleb. You may have heard of it. It's called The Black Swan. Mm-hmm. And the book is about uh, our expectations and uh, ability to predict and explain uh, the events that take place in the world. You know, uh, it's about how unexpected things are bound to happen and how we make sense of them afterwards. He uses a, an analogy in this book. He says, you know, a black swan is something that um, the title of the book is The Black Swan because prior to the discovery of black swans in Australia, there was no such thing as a black swan in the world. And it wasn't possible. Everyone knew that swans are white and that it was impossible for one to be black until they discovered them in Australia. And then it's obvious, you know, that this, this uh, unexpected, unexplainable thing has an obvious explanation. You know, he says, uh, for the turkey, getting your head cut off is a black swan. It's an unexpected and unpredictable event. But for the butcher, it's not. Mm-hmm. And our trick is, you know, our goal as a society in managing risk and unexpected events is to be the butcher and not the turkey, right? <laughs> in this particular case, we all seem kind of like turkeys because we're running around with our heads cut off. The cell phones won't work. The internet won't work. What are we supposed to do? And I don't mean to make light of it, but it's not just the customers, but Rogers, you know, what are we supposed to do? Well, we planned and we had a process and place and you have the minister that says well as soon as this went out i woke up in tokyo and called the head of rogers and the head of bell and believe me when i speak to them they'll listen and they'll do what i say and you have the crtc getting in front of the parliament and saying well you know these things are bound to happen we're all a bunch of turkeys in this situation i think we need to be thinking about how to be the butcher right and the idea of a telecom bill of rights to me is a good way because it's setting out a plan if this type of thing happens again, and we don't want it to happen, but if it does, here's what we're going to do, right? That, that, that's got to be a baseline. I think you can do it that way. Is the, the reason why some action needs to happen at the regulator is because consumers have these rights. You can put it that way, or you can just say the way it used to be, which is, you know, if you guys want to continue to operate as companies in Canada, there are quality of service requirements at a baseline that you must meet. We have decided it. We are the regulator. This has to happen for the reason that people need to be connected and it's mission critical and life's lives can be lost and ra-di-da, which seems obvious. Um, doesn't really matter to me, but what seems to be, to be being ignored right now is a serious, thorough investigation to get to a transparent understanding of what happened at Rogers. That's the, you know, how do you become the butcher thing you're talking about? And then the second part is like, everybody's like, Oh my God, these things are going to happen. Like, you know, these things are just going to happen is basically what the CRTC chair said. So, you know, suck it up and, and, you know, we'll, we'll sift through the, through the wreckage here and, and maybe come up with a couple of suggestions, but no comprehensive rules is sort of the way I'm reading the signals out of CRTC. But it's perfectly possible to manage this risk. And one of the good ways to manage the risk now that networks are architected the way that they are through the through the IP stuff, through the internet, a large part of 
our modern networks transit the internet. They have to remain connected to it. That appears to have been the core of the problem. Um, we can, we can figure this out if we set baseline rules for how updates are done, what sort of compensation has to be given to consumers, what sort of notification to, to all of the users, including competitors has to be given by the company so that even if they don't know when the outage what will end and they don't know what it is, they at least communicate that information. Like to me, that was the most egregious part of this whole thing was not an, a mindset inside Rogers to say, let's at least tell people that we don't know what's going on. Like there was a refusal to admit weakness, perhaps because they're trying to look good for the deal perhaps because they're just a big telco and they never want to show that this could be happening. But if something your black swan is happening, there is no shame. Well, maybe there's shame, but there, it is more responsible to say, Hey, we don't know what's going on. This looks like a big one folks. And we can't tell you when it's going to end because then people could have made arrangements. Like think of people who could have checked on their elderly relatives and stayed in physical contact or got a neighbor to go check on them. Right because they would have bell phones or telephones or whatever. And they would find a way because they, if they knew their elderly parent was only a Rogers customer, they could make sure that someone was checking in on them and they could arrange their affairs or even drive around there, whatever. Cause they know Rogers is probably going to be out all day or at least for an indeterminate period. So they can make a risk decision on their own about having a lack of communication with a vulnerable person. Why wasn't that done? And same thing for competitors. Like, you know, they've got their own customers to inform. And it, the fact that the, the provider doesn't know the cause of the, the outage or how long it's going to last is information. Like, do you not? I thought that was the most egregious part of this whole thing. Like, I mean, I know there were other bad parts to it, but to me that was sort of a, something that can be easily changed by the regulator saying you have to at least tell that kind of information to people. I, yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, regardless of whether we're basing the response in a substantive approach to justice or procedural approach to justice, I agree that we need to have justice in these types of situations, and there hasn't been any yet. And speaking as, obviously speaking as a board member of PIAC, but also just speaking as a person who pays attention to these types of events, it's incredibly frustrating to me who have listened to the head of the CRTC presenting before Parliament and the way that they've responded to this situation. PIAC asked for a consultation right off the hop. It's in that list of documents that they're keeping on their webpage about this. And they mm -hmm. have not committed. They have not committed to have a consultation. You know, the first step towards addressing this problem is to getting a conversation going which is what we're doing right now and what, what's been going on in the news. And I think it's uh, telling the length of time that people have remained concerned. You know, I'm still getting calls from the media about this. But the CRTC, the one institution that we've got set up to deal with this type of thing, it's handed an opportunity to start that conversation. And they so far have refused to take it up. Well, they're not leading on it. That's for sure. Like, to me... The CRTC has enormous powers to inquire into this. That's why we made that formal request that you're referring to on the first day. We wrote a letter saying, hey, you have inquiry powers. They have a special section, Section 48 of the Telecom Act, where they can do a full inquiry, you know, and 
get documents and visit premises. Like if people are changing the software at Rogers or, or firing people or, you know, forgetting things because time is passing, an inquiry officer could have been in there same day or day after, honestly. The telecom committee of CRTC, you know, the commission can call a meeting within two hours under their rules to start doing something. There's nothing stopping the CRTC chair from going on TV, you know, midday to say, we're the regulator, you know, and although we adjudicate things, we have these other powers and we are going to do X, Y, Z and reassure people that wasn't done. You know, there are these questions which came out, but they're, they're not, they haven't indicated that it's actually part of the formal hearing that you're right. We requested to try to set rules for all telecom providers because this could happen to Rogers, but it, believe me, it's happened to other providers and it happens regularly due to weather events, but also due to software crashes and other things. And probably will happen more considering networks are architected, you know, in, in this new way where they're, they're using the internet for transit, at least part of their traffic. Right. So yeah, this is, this is something that the CRTC could have led on and did not, and is still refusing to. We have a second letter in. I sent one two days ago. Today is the 27th. That was the 25th saying, hey, you didn't answer our first letter asking for these two things. How about it? You know, we asked on the 8th. Today's the 25th. <laughs> um, no answer yet. There were some vague comments, I believe, by Mr. Scott in the industry hearing that more was to come. I think that's what he said, right? And But there was no commitment to doing more formal process at CRTC to come up with new rules. And my concern, Ben, is that there's a, going to be a little bit of inquiry here very much on Roger's schedule and, you know, at a, at a slow pace in a sleepy back corner of the CRTC website that basically they're sweeping it under the rug, it looks like. I share that same concern. You know, I imagine once once people are back to school, but the problem is, is that the, these types of things are very much in your sort of sphere of awareness when they're happening. But when they're not, you move along and forget about it. And if the people who are supposed to be watching what's going on when you're not paying attention to it drop the ball, then what hope do we have that there's going to be any real sort of change in this in this uh, area? Well, there were a couple, a couple MPs who on the, on the, com the committee of the industry committee who were asking whether the CRTC mandate is really being, is being followed. In other words, they were saying in so many words, is the CRTC doing its job? That was the question they were putting to witnesses to us, to you and me. Um, and I think they got the answer, especially from Professor Geist. The answer was no, in his opinion. Um, and I kind of, I kind of follow that logic too, but I, I believe that there's, this other layer of lack of understanding of what Canada's telecom policy is and what the regulation is that we're using to try to achieve that. That's just, I guess it's too technical for people to understand. I'm trying to explain it. I don't know how else to do it. I do want to talk about one thing that, that I think is still lingering that I haven't seen very much good commentary on it at all. Cause it's again, another bit of a confusing legal thing, but people who lost money, and the whole question of compensation and liability of telcos in this sort of situation is an area that I think, um, I don't know, like you've, you've seen the five day promise. I don't know. What, what do you think of, of getting five days of service 
taken off your next monthly bill or this month's bill because because of the well, outage. I think if you're a person who was going to spend a little bit of time texting with your friends or watching videos on YouTube, then uh, on its face, it seems fair. But if you're a business who was planning on processing transactions on that day and weren't able to earn your living, then that's a totally different story. You know, I think that an arbitrary decision by Rogers, presumably based on how much they think they can afford uh, to let go on this in terms of foregone revenue, uh, isn't good enough as a systemic answer. You know, I think that the there are analogies to the liability that these companies have for the service they provide. Uh, the common carrier regime is one of them. You know, they're not responsible for what people say on the on the phone, but they do have certain obligations. And if they're holding themselves out as providing a service and they don't provide it, uh, then there has to be some sort of consequence. And I think it should be codified. So number one, the idea that Rogers would just sort of have a huddle and come back uh, with whatever they came up with is not the best way to proceed, to put it lightly. Um, yeah. There's got to, you know, we have in, in, in we have an air passenger bill of rights uh, in and a schedule of rates for compensation if you're bumped off a plane in the adjacent industry, um, which is also much like telecom, uh, three companies in a trench code, or I think maybe there's only two. So to me, getting something in place that, uh, that sets out the expectations for people ahead of time is better than an ad hoc. And it's more important thinking about it from that sort of bird's eye than it is about what's this particular outage going to be worth to people. Yeah, it's interesting that you raise the air passenger protection regulations and the schedule that people can expect for a delay or a cancellation. And that's pretty transparent for consumers. It gives the incentive to the consumer to seek it, and uh, it's 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 helpful. The liability issue, I think, gets complicated by a couple of things. One is people, yeah, who you mentioned off the top, who have consequential damages because I couldn't do communications, therefore I lost money, right? extra money, which I would have earned. And that, that gets you pretty quickly into, you know, uh, allegations of, of causation and, and all these lawyery things that, that we think about and remoteness and all, all this sort of, my lawyer brain turns on and says, oh, well, you know, you have to prove your particular damages. And then right away, you're out of, you know, a kind of a class action thing where your interests are all the same. Just the fact that we were all offline, right? Couldn't do anything. During that period, whatever it was you were doing, we were all affected the same way. And my suspicion is Rogers looked at the likelihood of what they would have to pay under a class action and gave everybody about that much. <laughs> I hate to say it that way. Um, but it's possible that they made that kind of calculation. Um, and I don't even know if there's one that's being planned right now. In terms of people who lost money as a consequential thing, I can tell you that the trouble with running a network or any common carrier service is your potential liability is enormous because you think if you had to compensate everybody for all of the followed effects of your delivered data not being delivered, right? The liability can, can basically put them out of business completely overnight if they have an outage like this. If everybody made consequential claims for everything, Right, just in the same way that the phone company would be put out of business if it was on the hook for people, the mob making, uh, you know, tell, telling each other where to hide the bodies on the phone. But this is actually the fault of the telco, not the fact that they're carrying "quote unquote" illegal things. Um, and I'll just tell you that the way this has been handled under 
acts like the Telecommunications Act and other sort of network liability regimes is the regulator gets to decide the limits of liability the companies can put in their terms of service. And so for a long, 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 long time, <laughs> the telecom rule was always three months of service is the max. So if you had a telephone bill of $20 a month, then if Bell did something to you, like left you unconnected for uh, a month, you can try to sue them till you're blue in the face, but you'd get 60 bucks. And that was the regulator's compromise. And they made them, Bell put it in their tariffs under, I think it was section 11 of their terms saying, listen, folks, you know, if you use Bell, just want you to know that the most money you're ever going to get out from us, unless there's some kind of gross negligence or intentional act is going to be 60 bucks, three months service. That's it. And, um, that's one way to deal with it. But if you'll go back to me talking about the forbearance stuff and that 1993 act and all this stuff that has changed since 1993, the liability rules, the CRTC set is also one of those things they forbear from. Mm -hmm. So they haven't set any rules of liability. And if you look at your contract for Rogers or Bell or Shaw or whoever, it says we get to limit liability to whatever we want. <laughs> and that's not reasonable either. So in other words, I haven't read my Rogers contract. I should pull it out, but I think it probably says something like that. So the fact is if they're offering you five days, I probably couldn't have even gotten that by complaining under my terms of service. Or if I would have, I would have had to go to court and fight, fight, fight. And I probably would have got something like five days of service anyway. So, you know, like it's, it's another area where people go, oh, well, you know, I should get my money back if they cut me off. Well, it's not that simple, actually. But what's really frustrating to me is there's a perfectly good system for kind of sawing off liability at a reasonable point. Right? And who is supposed to do that? The CRTC. Who has not been doing that for the last 30 years? The CRTC. <laughs> so, so what do you get? You get a freight train wreck like this, and then everybody points fingers and wants their money. And, and the answer is they get what Rogers feels is fair because that's the rule right now. It's crazy. So, John, what do you think is more frustrating to you, the outage or the fact that we know that we could be doing something about it, but we're not? What's frustrating to me is that the structure that was set up to protect the public interest, which is, okay, you can have privately owned communications companies run the system in Canada, so the government's not running it. But in return, hey, companies, guess what? You get regulated like a public utility in many respects. So your rates are approved. Your liability regime is approved. Your quality of service levels are somewhat regulated so that you know, there's dial tone when people pick up the phone or whatever the modern equivalent is. That's the deal. It, in other words, hey, companies, if you don't want the government to run the phone system and the internet system and the wireless system, you want to make money from it, guess what? It comes with a regulator who tells you what to do, and here's the rule book. And what really frustrates me, and you can hear it in the voice, is there is a rule book, but the rule book has a rule in it that says you don't have to follow the rule book. And that was quietly put in 1993, and it has infected the entire system. And we are now in the end terminal stages of the patient, dying from the exception to the exception. And there are no rules. 
And yet there's a structure with a pretend regulator and a pretend act that does stuff. Supposedly, it doesn't do a thing. And then you add on the bacon bits of a political level minister who says he's doing stuff under some presumed authority for which he has no authority. There's nothing in the Telecom Act that lets him specify to people, to companies, to cooperate or to do this or to do that. He mentioned Bill C-27, which is one to give the government and the minister the power to specify what equipment is in telecom networks and what security measures they have to take. Why do they have to pass that bill? Because he has no such power right now. And believe me, he has none to make them cooperate for an emergency or to share traffic or to do anything. So it's all a political smokescreen on top of the fake regulator. And the whole structure is frustrating because when you work in the area, you think, well, I'm doing substantive work. And it turns out you're just like playing a part in, in a theater show. <laughs> and then people, you know, yell and say, well, what can we do to change it? And you say, well, I've been, you know, I've been working hard in the fake theater show the last 20 years. And then you just realize to yourself that maybe what you've been doing is kind of faking it to people. So I, I can see where people are frustrated and they're like, well, even you, Piak, you aren't doing anything because the area you're working in isn't going to produce any substantive results. So it's quite frustrating. Yeah, I can see why, you know, and I've been perusing in the recent weeks back through this uh, broadcasting and telecommunications legislative review that took place. I think it was released in the beginning of 2020 where there's a laundry list of recommendations and a lot of them are calling for reform to the CRTC and new rules for telecommunication to come in. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. And I'm wondering if any of it's going to ever happen. Uh, we're, we're sitting here talking about what can we do? We have the tools, but they're not being used. Uh, we have a minister that says people are going to listen to me, but we have no re no, no basis for trusting him. I've heard it proposed before to, that, you know, it's, it's, would be good to break the CRTC up into two. I don't, first of all, I don't think I hear people saying we should get rid of it all the time. And I think that, that would be a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. Something that needs to be fixed. What do you think about this idea of taking the broadcasting and putting it on one side in, in one thing and taking the telecommunications and putting it on the other so that the specific regulators can focus on one issue over the other? You know, because we've heard so much and the government has taken up so much of what this report recommended when it comes to streaming and netflix and all that type of stuff but when it comes to the recommendations they're making about reforming the crtc and the telecommunications act something that we've all just recently been reminded is of central importance to the country bobkiss they haven't done anything it's a funny conundrum it's very canadian and if you go back to the late 60s early 70s there was a department of communications which i think rightly showed the government knew, you know, what, what was crucial about telecommunications, which is it's an input to every other industry. Like you need the phone then, and now internet and wireless to do anything else and to make the country run and to run your mines and your banks and your, you know, airlines and your, uh, healthcare system and, uh, you know, your sports leagues and whatever, you know, you need it as an input. So it better work and it better be relatively affordable for everybody, including business. And that was reflected in the fact they had a department of communications. Well, you know, 
at a certain point, the Department of Communications was subsumed into what became Industry Canada. And communications lost its luster. And in a parallel track, we had the whole, you know, quiet revolution in Quebec and the importance of bilingualism and the whole Trudeau, first Trudeau uh, effort to make sure there was Canadian content and a continued um, distinctness of Canada and bilingualism. And, you know, and, and now we're adding Indigenous uh, very much too late, but um, impact on, on culture in Canada too. I think Conrad von Finkenstein wouldn't mind me saying he said this before I allowed that the broadcasting tail began to wag the telecom dog. Telecom is 10 times as big as broadcasting in Canada in terms of revenues and its impact is an input to broadcasting itself, which is a point um, I think Michael Geist made in our hearing, right? You, you can talk can call all you want, but if you can't get online, you can't watch it. Um, and so we have this, weird structure where there's no one department that's in charge of telecommunications. Whereas we have a department in charge of transportation. Why don't we have one for communications? Well, it's part of, I said, well, yeah, except you know what the body that looks after telecommunications and broadcasting is notionally under the broadcast minister, the heritage minister who's in, you know, it has an important role for Canadian content, but it has nothing to do with whether the telecom system works. That's stupid. <laughs> it's stupid. I, it, getting somebody, you know, people complain about who should be the next chair of the CRTC. They should understand telecom. They should understand, you know, the internet, how it works and maybe come from, you know, Google or something. Well, no, because the heritage minister thinks the most important feature of the new chair will be that the new chair understands cultural issues. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It shouldn't be the heritage minister deciding who is the CRTC chair. That's nonsense. It's stupid. It's an artifact of the, yeah, the, the waning of the communications department and the understanding that communications is just an input to everything else on one side and then culture being protected, maybe even overprotected in Canada. Um, and that ending up because of its sexiness or because of its, it's yeah, it's ability to win votes or something or people's ability to wrap their head around culture as opposed to telecom. That is now what's driving the bus. And it's, it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy structure. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. So it's very, very Canadian and, and getting everybody to recognize the importance of both telecom and broadcasting and to have a clear vision for both and how they fit together is, is what I think the report you're referring to the broadcasting and telecommunications legislative review panel report was trying to do. It was trying to say, look, we need to fix both. And I think you're right to go back to it and say, here's their plan. I didn't agree with everything in it, but at least they acknowledge that you have to start with the CRTC and rationalize that and then work out from there. So that's a very long winded answer to the very weird structure we have in Canada. Well, it's certainly, uh, validates my frustration at hearing the minister say this is all roger's fault and roger's saying this is only our fault because in my view these types of big questions are really the ones that need to be answered if we're going to avoid finding ourselves in this situation in the future you know we've got a systemic problem on our hands here everyone shares in the blame and everyone shares in the responsibility for doing something about it but the government is responsible at the end of the day for making sure 
that the economy and the essential services of the country work. And if it's a federal responsibility like telecommunications, then people should be saying, hey, federal government, fix this. A hundred percent. Like you said before, it's a polyvalent problem. And so we need, uh, you know, the most polyvalent institutions we've got. The government representing the public interest has got to step up. It's saying this is Roger's problem. Roger's is going to fix it. Just obviously it's not good enough. It hasn't been good enough for 30 years. It's not good enough today. Well, and this leads down the path of, well, then what are their tools? And you get into whether they should be approving uh, further mergers in telecommunications and what the role of the federal government is in, in structuring the industry, right? Like, you know, it's funny because you've been very critical of the industry structure and so have lots of other commentators. I agree. There's not enough competition. It's not good for companies to get bigger. You know, we've opposed the Roger Shaw deal. It's pretty clear. But at the end of the day, like, I kind of don't care. It doesn't really, really, really matter if it's one company or 50 companies. If there isn't a rule book, and if the thing doesn't deliver the inputs that we need from telecom, it's junk. It's junk. And just having one merger approved or not approved actually doesn't really change what's going on here. Maybe things will get worse, or maybe more customers would have been affected if Rogers had already closed the deal. I don't know. But do I think competition is like the magic silver bullet? No, I mean, I've just spent the last hour yelling that when competition comes in and replaces rules, this is what you get. You get a disaster. You get a disaster. And competition is a nice to have once you have a nice rule book with somebody who applies the rules like a very strong regulator with backup from the political branch that says, here's our policy. We're going to let the private people do it instead of nationalizing it. But the price of not nationalizing you guys is that you have to follow the rule book and listen to this, this outfit called the CRTC. It doesn't seem that hard. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll preach. You know, I agree with everything you're saying. Well, I'm pounding the pulpit, but the finer details of these things can, can be eye-glazing. And I just want people to know that what we're trying to do at the Public Interest Advocacy Center is to look after the public interest and find the most practical way to actually get to results and we're trying to use the tools that exist but if there are structures that aren't working or there's a need to poke the political um, powers that be that's really not our role and i guess i'm saying to people who are frustrated and maybe now frustrated that i've limited i've said what the limits are of what we can do you know this is something where you could talk to your member of parliament because this is a federally regulated area and if you're not happy with this use your use your power of political influence by being a voter and by, by being a citizen to talk to the people who are in charge and say this is a big enough issue for me to call you at your mp's office or send you an email if it's working and um here's what i think yeah it's tough to sit there listening to the minister tell parliament that he took the voice of the frustrated canadians to the telcos you know, because if he had taken my voice there, he wouldn't have left saying, well, we've come up with a three-point mutual cooperation agreement between the telcos. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah. That maybe was time just... for something bigger. Used to have royal commissions. Yeah, used to have the royal commissions. Now we get backroom, backroom agreements. Well, even, even cabinet could direct the CRT to produce a full detailed report 
like, like sort of the section 48 thing I was talking about, they could have issued that on the second day from cabinet saying CRTC, we expect a report on our desk in 60 days. Right. Didn't do that. Um, the agreement you're talking about with minister champagne is based on an FCC agreement in the United States where the carriers during natural disasters are expected to take some portion of the, their competitor's traffic after ensuring their network is fully functional for all their own customers. And then if they have a little extra capacity, they're supposed to take roaming from others and they're supposed to cooperate formally on mutual assistance, meaning lending engineers or, or you know, hardware and software and this sort of stuff in an emergency situation. It's not even clear in the FCC order that if safe Verizon has one of these super wipeouts, which is totally Verizon on Verizon caused, and there's no one else involved that their order even applies. And so I would be concerned about whatever champagne and the companies are working out is that the language will be very similar. And so what we're going to have is again, a theater show of doing something making these companies cooperate, but really the cooperation is so limited the the next huge outage, either the companies will say, well, that's all done by the company self-inflicted. We're not going to help. Or even if they help, it's going to be so limited that, you know, you might be able to send some texts to people. If you're lucky enough to be one of the people that gets to roam on the other carrier automatically, or you might not like 911 might work better because they, appear to have had a technical issue where they couldn't do a switchover that was supposed to work, which is really unfortunate. But I think we can expect more than that. We can expect resilient, as you're saying, but even better, a quality of service level from all the companies that they have a plan for an outage and they have a bunch of steps to take to try to reduce the likelihood of them having an outage. I think you've got yourself a good title for this episode of the podcast. I think we can expect more. <laughs> I was going to call it Black Swan, but if you insist, um, I'll find some way to put those two together. I think this has been kind of heavy for people. There's a bunch of technical junk that I wanted to get through, and I'm sure people have questions, but I guess what I'm hoping comes out of this is to prod listeners who have made it this far, because we're probably almost over time. Um, to take some action that my concern is that this issue will slowly melt in the summer sun here. And that by the time parliament comes back in the fall, the attention will be on whether the competition bureau and the competition tribunal have an answer for Rogers and Shaw before December. Uh, Cause that's when November, I believe is when the hearing on this starts and whether there'll be some deal worked out in the meantime, and everyone will have forgotten about this outage and that in the kerfuffle CRTC will take some questions and do some what I'm calling kind of back room process and not launch anything formal. And this whole thing a year from now will be people saying, Oh yeah, you remember when Rogers was out? And I just don't feel like that's good enough. No, some, something's got to give, you know, over the course of this conversation, I've been thinking, and like you said, we've gotten into bit into the weeds and it's fairly wide ranging, but really, I mean, if that's, that's the answer you come to about the cause of these problems then something's got to give. And I think at least there's a, I don't know if I'd describe it as a ray of, ray of hope, but I've been researching this stuff for 12 years, periodically get mad about something. And, and I find that lots of people periodically get mad about something. Today, it's an outage. Tomorrow, it will be the prices. 
the next day, who knows what it's going to be. But I think that you have identified for me, John, in this conversation, really, that it is a deep-seated problem. It has to do with our systems. It manifests in different ways from time to time. And until we take a really serious look about the structures we built up that are supposed to support the delivery of communications in this country, until we take a look at the rot that's gone down to the roots of this system, we're just going to keep having these problems over and over again. Well, I'm willing to give the system one more go and and try to get good people in and, and guide it back on track. But, you know, I think you're right. At a certain point, if we do all that, maybe give it one last heave ho for a year or two. If it's, if it's not, if it's not working, then you kind of got to rip it out and start fresh. And that's a horribly huge undertaking. And given the importance of this thing, it would have to be done very carefully. It's kind of like reconfiguring your airplane in the air, but, um, but it's going to keep crashing otherwise. And, just my last comment, I'll just say that the minister a number of times uh, in his commentary um, to the to the to the committees talked about you know comparing this to it and I don't mean to for anyone who's had an air tragedy victim you know I don't want to equate the two things but he did he did compare it not me to airline issues. And I just, you know, the, the, the equivalent of this thing is it was kind of a serious air accident equivalent. You know, what happened? It wasn't just like a flap got stuck up. It was like the plane crashed on the land, like on landing. And um, it was serious. And, and we were lucky that more people didn't get seriously hurt. Uh, again, like I said, if this were in winter, uh, you know, <laughs> would it have well, come yeah, the out so MP well? From, uh, the MP from BC pointed out that there was four alerts that didn't go out in Saskatchewan. One was for a dangerous person at large and the other three was for a tornado warning. Yeah. So I guess the tornado didn't touch down or hopefully people took shelter, but you know, public safety is number one. And then just communication is what we rely on as humans to get stuff done and, and coordinate as a society. And it, it's, I kind of feel like everyone in this business just thinks it's a money spinning machine in a widget factory and it's not. And, um, and the public knows that it isn't. And I guess I'm reaching out to the public saying, if you don't, if you think this is really important, like try to let your political people know, because it's the only way anything's going to get done. Yeah. And I think if I can just get one more word in here, well, the word is forbearance. You pointed out that we've got this regulator that has all the tools, but there's this escape valve in the law that says it can, and in some cases it must forbear from regulation you know the dictionary definition of forbearance is patient self-control restraint and tolerance i think we can all agree that the time for those things has come and gone yep i i think we should stop stop forbearing and start acting so thanks ben i'm glad you were my audience for the rant when we got on the conversation you were worried you were going to get upset <laughs> and it turned out to be me who got upset um but thanks for being the uh, the person who had to suffer through listening to this. Um, we don't have uh, a really, and I told you so, segment this week, and we're also almost over time. The I told you so I had was going to be actually on the Roger Shaw deal, but I don't need to now. And we'll come back uh, for the much promised privacy podcast in 
in about a week to, to look at Bill C-27, which is the new attempt to change Canada's privacy laws. But in the meantime, Ben, I wanted to thank you very much and for being the calm level head on here and for the work that you do in communications research and, and, and writing. And I look forward to working with you on the PIAC board and, and having more of these conversations. So thank you. Right back at you, John. Right on. Thanks so much. Okay, everybody, that's it for today. And we'll, we'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Fight For That. The Public Interest Advocacy Centre needs your help to keep making this show and to keep fighting for you. I'm John Lawford. See you next time for another round of consumer protection. Thank you.